We're really glad you're here. We're in a series, and we titled it, The Illusion I'm in Control. We discovered the fact that there's just a lot of things we don't control. We can manage some things well, but there's a whole bunch of things out of our control. And we talked about, last week, stuff. And the bumper sticker, stuff happens. Good stuff, bad stuff. And it happens to everybody. Everybody's affected by stuff. Whether you love Jesus or you don't know Jesus from a Abraham Lincoln. Bad stuff, good stuff happens to everybody. But we learned that in the midst of it, God works. Well, sometimes God brings good stuff to us. We all like that. I do. And sometimes God does good stuff in us. That's a little more painful. I don't appreciate that one so much. But God's always working good either to me or in me. I'm going to win either way in this deal, whether it's bad circumstances or good circumstances. Our text for this is Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, good things, bad things, good stuff, bad stuff, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. So as believers, the idea is not that we have better things and better stuff happen to us, or we create this illusion that if I become a Christian, then all I can expect is just good things coming to me. And you're going to go out and find your batteries dead. Or you're going to find somebody ran a light, had a crash, and the traffic's piled up on 281 trying to get out of here. Stuff happens, right? To everybody. So, so wake up and smell the roses. Don't give people this false ideology that just because I'm a Christian, I'm immune to bad stuff. It, you haven't lived long enough if you believe that. So stuff happens to everybody, but God works in all stuff to those who love Him. And so in all stuff, God is at work doing good to build good character in all of us. Now that brings us to today's topic, and that's the idea of growth. Spiritual growth, to grow in character, is the most important of all. But there's something kind of humbling about it. You know, God's more interested in the production of my character than the provision of my comfort. And if you're a parent, that ought to be your attitude towards those little munchkins. Sometimes I'm going to make you uncomfortable because I want you to have good character. And if you're misbehaving, I'm going to step in and interrupt it, and it might be a little uncomfortable. That's normal. Well, God's a good Father and a heavenly Father, and He loves you. Everybody's so psyched up about going up, nobody wants to grow up. <laughs> it's a fact. They usually come to church. Everybody I've ever talked to will find at some point in their lives they're kind of disappointed. Maybe they thought they would be growing more spiritually than they have. Or maybe they thought that if anybody feels a little disappointed in their spiritual growth, I think all of us could nod, yeah, I've had that thought. Or that by now you'd pray better, or you'd pray with a little more faith and confidence, but that's not happening at the moment. So you're kind of disturbed about it. Or you feel like maybe perhaps you're anxious now about the future and less trusting of God than you thought you would be. 
Or you're a little disappointed that you thought by now you'd be beyond certain temptations. That, you know, nothing would bother you anymore. Hey, you still live in a body. You still have the flesh encompassing this whole spiritual man. And that flesh never wants, my flesh never wants to do anything good. Paul, oh, look at me, strange. I'd rather speed than obey the speed limit, you know. I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's just part of the flesh that has to be disciplined by the Holy Spirit. And so you thought, maybe I'd be over this by now, but I'm still failing in some areas. Or you thought by now you'd be better with your money. You thought maybe you'd be more generous. You thought you would be a better family person, maybe a better spouse, a better parent, a better brother or sister, or maybe a better friend. Or you thought you'd be sharing your faith a little bolder and maybe having a bigger impact on people around you. Well, maybe you thought you'd have a better grip on stuff you say. You still let angry, stupid things fly out of your mouth. You don't talk when you should or you do talk when you should not. Maybe you just thought you'd know God better. Well, we're going to talk about this mystery. And I want to locate it in a parable Jesus told that's kind of obscure. It only occurs in one gospel and it's in Mark. And here it is. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through verse 29. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whenever he sleeps or gets up, that seed sprouts and grows, although he does not know how. He doesn't have control over it. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle into it because the harvest has come. Growth is an amazing thing. This guy is involved in the story. He had to plant, but he's not controlling it. He's not manufacturing the growth. He doesn't even really understand it. A lot of times it's going on regardless of what he happens to be doing. It's true that growth, spiritual growth, the change in character of a human being is the most important process going on in the universe. Galaxies come and go and empires rise and fall, but they're trivial in comparison to transformation in us. How does change happen? Why is it so hard? Why does it seem so hard to help people grow spiritually? Okay, I'll give you some questions I have. I don't know everything. I know someone who does. And I have to go to him for wisdom. But there's a whole lot of questions I'd like to ask the Lord. How come there are some people who believe in God or say they do? They're in church their whole life long. Year after year they do the church thing. But they are joyless. They don't love very much. They're judgmental. Kids can't stand them. Nobody wants to be around them. I don't know. There are other people outside the church, they don't even believe in God, and they seem to be quite joyful, honest, they seem to be quite generous. How does God sort all that out? Why is it that believers are sometimes such knuckleheads, and unbelievers can be sometimes great people? I don't know. Why is it that just right out of the mama's womb, some little babies grow up, and it seems like they're just set up to struggle with anxiety or depression, or they're going to be fearful or shy, or they're going to be socially awkward around other people. And then there are others, and they just seem to be born with this fabulous personality, a high level of resilience. They're cheerful. 
they're emotionally intelligent. They're just, you know, they're going to lead a charmed life. And it just starts, seems like, right out of the womb. It seems like they're just pre-wired that way. Why is that? I don't know. You want to buy me a cup of coffee? I don't know. Why is it some people as parents work so hard, read the books, go to seminars, pray for your children, get them involved in church, and the kids just break their heart? Don't know. Then there are other parents, they're a train wreck. Their lives are a train wreck. Their marriage is a train wreck. They do everything wrong, and their kids grow up to be fabulous. Boy, have I seen that one. I don't know. So why is it that the formula for spiritual growth seems to be so elusive? One guy can read the Bible regularly, and it's like God becomes very real to him. Somebody else can read the Bible a lot, and it just makes them mean as snot, judgmental, puffed up, superior, and arrogant, and they just use it to try to win arguments. Ugh, hate to be around people like that. So we all wrestle with this stuff. I'm just being honest. And we all look around and we all wonder, why is it so hard? And sometimes, honestly, and maybe in the quietness of your heart, you say, I wonder if it's worth it. Going to church, reading the Bible, trying to reach out to God. You know, does growth really ever happen? Oh, yes, baby, it does. Growth does happen. I've seen it. Many of you have too. I've seen people drive on this parking lot living in a car. No gainful employment at all. Find Jesus Christ, get off drugs, get in a rehab program, become gainfully employed and members of God's church. I've watched it in this church. I've watched a young man who was enslaved alcoholic in a rock and roll band, destroying his life, walk into this church over 16 years ago, have a complete transformation. Then Jesus, when he met him, interrupted his life. He got himself in a little community where they went through those steps in AA to surrender their wills to God, and it's like he became a new person, and now he meets in groups for churches for recovery, people with substance abuse, alcohol addiction, because he was one, and now a man of the Spirit and a guy that runs all over this city, still one of my dear friends. Yeah, change happens. Growth happens. It's different. Your children don't grow at the same rate. They don't get potty trained at the same time, do they? You don't get alarmed. Well, spiritual growth is the same way. Don't give up. Don't quit. You know, I'm going to give you some I believe statements. I believe statements about growth that I'm banking my life on, and maybe you will too. Number one, I believe growth toward Christ-like character is worth full commitment, 100% commitment. You know, we all want to flourish. We all want to thrive. Everybody in here. You know, there's no opportunity, no other one like the one Jesus gave to the human race when he said, follow me. Now, for centuries, when people do that, they discover, if I lose everything else the world has to offer, but I find this treasure that Jesus gave, losing all that stuff doesn't really matter. But if I get all that stuff and lose God and lose becoming the right kind of person, then all of that stuff doesn't matter. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Nothing. Who's going to get your Ferrari? Who's going to live in your gated community, in your hot, hot house, in your hot, hot zip code? Who's going to get your Louis Vuitton purse or your little Chanel dress or your Cartier watch? Somebody else will. That's who will. 
In Jesus' day, when people would see this, they would say, I will sacrifice anything to follow this man, and I'll do it with great joy. And Jesus would tell stories to try to communicate this truth to the people around him. He would say, the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in a field. And when the man found it, he hid it again. Now, that's kind of a sneaky thing to do. Jesus is not recommending sneaky real estate practices. He's showing what the strong desire for life in the kingdom would look like. When a man found this treasure, he hid it again, and then with great joy went and sold everything he had and bought that field. Again, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, that line about selling everything he had, people did not do that feeling like, oh, this is so hard. I'm a martyr. No, they were thinking, holy cow, this is the best thing I ever found. Whatever it takes, I got to have it. So to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, to be aligned with Jesus, that's worth every ounce of devotion you can bring to it. I know. I live here. I've been to this rodeo. I get it. Anytime I talk about full devotion in our culture today, most people are not going to want to hear it. Yep, I get it. I know. What will happen in a talk like this is there will be a thought in a lot of people in this room who will say, Rick, you mean to tell me I'm supposed to sacrifice my time if necessary, my effort, my pride, my achievements, my energy? I'm supposed to give up my career accomplishments for the sake of my family? Uh Uh-huh. I'm supposed to alter my lifestyle so that I can be used by God to help those less fortunate, the poor? I'm supposed to be praying when my mind wanders all over the place and it's kind of hard and I'm not sure it's doing any good? Yeah. I'm supposed to go to other people when I've hurt them or done something wrong and actually make it right when it might be costly and I'd really rather not do it? Yeah. I'm supposed to ask God to discipline my thought life. I'm supposed to ask God to change my verbal behavior when I don't want to do it. I just want to let her rip, just let it fly. I'm supposed to surrender my will, give up my autonomy, and say to this great being in the universe, not my will, but yours be done, moment by moment, hour by hour, every day, every week, every month, every year of my life. You got it. Yep, that's what I mean. That's exactly right. And if you're not giving full devotion to that, what in God's name are you giving it to? Because you're giving it to something. What else is worth it? So I'm asking everybody this week, are you following Jesus with full devotion? You know, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, time, talent, and treasure? Or is there some area, some relationship, some habit, some secret, something you're holding back? Now, we can't manufacture spiritual growth. A tree can't make itself grow. Growth is a gift. Can can a leopard change his spots? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? The Bible says no. By worrying, can you add one inch to your height? No. Only God can do this. See? But a tree can put down roots. 
I can plant myself in God's house. I can listen to God's word. I can get in a community of people where iron sharpens iron. And I can live in that reality. I can pray. I can do certain things that bring grace and power that facilitate growth. But I can't make growth happen. I can't manufacture it. I'm not in control. And there's no room for pride around it when you do. But to grow, to flourish, to thrive in our character and spirit, in our relationship with God, shoot, that's worth it all. Our job is to put down roots. And there'll be certain practices we engage in for which we receive grace and power from God to make growth happen. That's all I can do. You know, when somebody goes to a pediatrician concerned about a child, a pediatrician in this church told me, not once has anybody ever asked me, how do I make my kid grow? No, they say, why isn't my kid growing? Which might be a good question to ask yourself. Because you do have to engage yourself in certain activities to grow. You know, if you want to lose weight, you got to do a little exercise, right? Uh, if you want to be pregnant, there are certain activities you have to engage in. I don't know where that one came from. I just kind of popped in. Second thought, I believe. I believe 100% commitment to spiritual growth ought to be normal in a church. It shouldn't look heroic. You shouldn't get a medal. It shouldn't look extraordinary. It's just what we call each other up to. Kind of like in AA, to follow the steps. It's not a contest. It's not competition. We don't compare. There's life. And then there's the alternative, which is death. This is what Paul says. This is out of the Message Bible in Ephesians 4. No prolonged infancies. In other words, stop being a baby. Grow up. No prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll not tolerate babies in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up to know the whole truth and tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other, his very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us, so we'll grow up healthy in God, robust in love. Now, the evil one wants you to stay vague and fuzzy on that one. There's a huge difference between saying, I'm 100% committed to something and actually being fully committed to it. <laughs> when I got married to Cindy over here a long time ago, about 44 years I said, I'm 100% committed to us being equals in partnering, in serving, in working together. I believe that. I believe the Bible teaches that, and I'm in on it. Well, then we got married. Then we began to have children. And my wife said, are you really 100% committed, really, to having an equal marriage where we're partners together? Where division of labor, shared work together, working around the house owning it, understanding it, not waiting to be asked to help, changing dirty diapers, washing the dishes, taking out the garbage, doing chores around the house, making sure stuff gets fixed, keeping track of doctor appointments. Are you really 100% committed to this? And in my mind, I thought, have you got another percentage on the table? <laughs> There's a big difference between 
being 100% committed and saying, I'm committed. See, the disciple, the follower of Jesus, does not ask what's allowable and pardonable. He asks what is commendable and praiseworthy. Somebody who gets it, somebody who's following Jesus, is not asking, what can I get away with? No, I'm asking, what will get me there? I've done interviews, but I've never done a job interview with somebody who said, what's the least amount of work I can do and not get fired? <laughs> no. I've done a lot of weddings, but I've never done one where the couple stands up here, face me, and their vow is, what's the least amount of fidelity I can offer and stay married? If somebody's following Jesus, if somebody gets the vision of life in the kingdom of God, they're not asking, how much of my money can I keep before God gets mad at me? Or how much lust am I allowed to retain and indulge in before God won't forgive me? Or how much bitterness or self-righteousness or judgmentalism can I nurse in my heart before my residency in heaven is at risk? See, the issue is not what will God allow. The issue is what does God want? What does God call me to? And it's not because he's severe or because commitment is this big heroic thing. It's because that's life. If I'm going to make him Lord, if I'm going to follow him, I'm supposed to do what he said. He bought me back from the enemy. He owns me. Well, it's my life. No, it isn't your life. If Jesus is your Lord, he paid for it in his blood. He owns it. He has every right to tell me what I should or should not do. And I fail, and you fail, and thank God there's grace. But I don't practice failure. Okay, number three. I believe spiritual growth requires commitment. If you don't plant a seed, that seed can be robust, can be, can be healthy, but it isn't going to produce a thing till it gets planted. you got to plant the seed. If you don't get planted, you can't grow. you got to get connected. The Bible says those who are planted in the house of God will flourish and bear fruit. And so if you're just a tumbleweed, you're like a seed that's it's a good seed, but it can't produce, it can't grow because nobody plants it. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So we get into relationships with each other, and we tell the truth to each other, and we encourage each other, and we admonish each other, and we don't grow without that. What does God say? Two are better than one, for they have a great reward for their labor. How about Psalms? He who isolates himself, the loner, seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. See, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I'm not about to get in any kind of community. Well, then you won't grow. God loves you, but you can't grow. See, we got this odd pattern inside of us. When somebody's speaking into our life or mine, if they compliment you, you love that. You're ready. To tell me more. Tell me more. If they tell you things that will make you feel good, oh, we enjoy that. Blow some more sunshine in my face. But if they're going to say something that's a bit difficult or hard or confrontational about your character, about your need for growth, we're not too sure we actually want to hear it. A guy travels over to Europe. He calls his wife and says, hey, honey, how's everything going? She said, well, the cat died. Well, he said, my goodness, did you have to put it so bluntly? You just ruined my whole trip. She said, well, how else would you want me to say it? He said, well, 
You could have said, you could have broken it to me gently. When I called from Paris, you could have said the cat was on the roof and it fell off. And it's not doing very well. Then when I got to London, you could have said I had to take the cat to the vet. And then when I made it to New York, you could have said the cat's not doing well at all. And then when I got home, you could have told me the cat died. That would have been a lot better. And the wife said, okay, I'm sorry. Then he asked, how's mom doing? She said, she's on the roof. <laughs> see, see, there's this weird thing. I, I really, that gives me such a picture. I, I really much prefer to have truth softened if you don't mind. I'd rather not hear the whole deal. I would rather not have you dump the whole load. Oh, thank you very much. The writer of Proverbs puts it like this. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. I need to pause there just a second. Don't be wounding if you're not already a friend. Not faithful are the wounds of a critic. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And when a friend has to wound a friend, you lower your voice, you're very gentle with it, you don't jab the knife in and stick it around, you go just about as easy as you think that person can handle it, but still telling the truth. Because you don't want to destroy them. It hurts. You want to help them. No chastisement for the moment seems pleasant, the writer of Hebrews says. I've never been chastised where I said joy to the world. <laughs> Have you? No, never feels good. But it's necessary. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Jamie Buckingham, who was the author of a Christian magazine from Melbourne, Florida, uh, Charisma Magazine, back many, many years ago, maybe 30 years ago, used to be a conference speaker. And he translated that, whom the Lord loves, he beats the hell out of. I, sometimes you feel like it. That little loose translation there, right? He'll take you to the woodshed. Now, especially for a lot of folks, if they achieve a certain level of connection, I'm connected to powerful people or famous people, or you get some power, or you become a celebrity, or you become a sports star, or you have a lot of resources, you will get the suck-up kisses of an enemy all the time. And you will think deceptively, man, I am doing great. This feels so good. Let me tell you, that's your enemy. When you've got power, money, celebrity, and fame, every groupie in the world is going to come to you. So they can say, I know her or him, or, I can, or what I might get by being with them. It's not for you. You go ahead and have trouble and watch how many leave you like rats off a ship. Yeah. No, no. So God's telling me, no, I can't just hear good things. I have to be willing to be corrected as well. Any of you ever had your wife say something corrective to you? Yeah, God spoke. <laughs> just used her voice. Wasn't all that pleasant either, was it? So your enemy is somebody who doesn't love you enough to risk pain to tell you the truth that you ought to hear to become your best self. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So if you come and you worship, but you're not in a community here, I'm going to tell you, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a disciple, you need relationships. 
We help each other grow. That's why connect groups are so important to help people get into relationships like that. Iron sharpening iron. You won't grow without the connection. I want to say one other thing, particularly to parents of young children. You know, we live in a culture where young people really have a hard time thriving. It's a tough culture to live in right now. There's so much pressure on them. That weight of, I got to achieve. I've got to do better. How's your GPA? What school are you going to go to? It's just crushing sometimes. A friend told me he was in a prayer meeting where a parent prayed, God, forgive me for being more concerned about being more concerned about getting my kid into college than getting them into heaven. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of where we live. And we got to break that. Now, just to be real clear, I thought I'd give you four reasons why getting your kid into heaven is a lot better than getting them into college. Number one, it costs less to get in. <laughs> Jesus already paid that price. Heaven is a lot less expensive than A&M or UT. Two, it's got better housing. Jesus is working on it. I've gone to prepare a place for you. Much better accommodations. Third, it's got much more diversity in the population. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there. And fourth, it's got a better administration. Thank God. We ought to be concerned about the spiritual growth of our children. And here's the problem and the pattern that needs to stop. We get this weird thing where at the beginning of a school year, we'll have lots of young people who get involved in our high school ministry or even young adults, and, and they get now to know God, and they get in relationships with each other, and they can love and be loved and have a place where they're safe and they don't have to perform, and that's important. But as the year goes on, you know what happens. There are tests and homework and pressure and activities and sports, and there are teams, and they start to feel the weight of all that, and it gets heavier and heavier. And at the time they need spiritual community the most, they experience it the least, and it becomes what gets dropped out of their life. So parents, you're the parents. Be with your kid and give them wisdom. Help them to understand how to prioritize their time and say you want to learn to arrange your time so it flows to what matters most, not what is putting the most pressure on you. And to make time for God and people who love you and know you so you can learn and worship together. So young people, I just want to simply challenge you. I know our world is insane, and I know it'll put a weight on you and get you to run on the achievement mill like crazy and climb an achievement ladder that can be crushing to you. Put a stake in the ground and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make a commitment for my time. You know, all, all through the year, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that God will take care of me. And I will make a priority of spiritual commitment. When we have that class meeting in the middle of the week or the end of the week or whatever, I'll be there for that one. I'm not going to drop out of life and fail. God won't fail me. Seek first the kingdom of God. All this other stuff, he said, I'll add to you. You're never going to come in last by putting God first. How a dumb thought. But that's what happens usually. So to learn about God, to worship God, to be with people who love me, just to have time to be a kid where I don't have to justify my existence in the world. I want to be that kind of a community at Summit. So put a stake in the ground. Fourth and last, I believe every moment in life is an opportunity for spiritual growth. Yeah. 
every moment. There are certain practices we want to engage in. I love this quote from Dr. Dallas Willard. We must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. God has yet to bless anybody except where they actually are. That's profound. Don't get de destination disease. Well, if I could be there, if I could be there, then I could have that. No, he comes right where you are, whether good or bad, whatever the circumstances is. Dillard goes on to say, and if we faithlessly disregard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being the right one, we'll simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our life. See, God just comes to you right where you are in the mess you're in right now. You could be up to your neck in drug addiction, bills, police pursuing you. He comes to you right where you are. He doesn't wait till you get it together. I ain't got it together yet. I'm just better together than I was. But there's still repairs going on and some building up. There's no finish line to spiritual growth. You just keep growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, right? So our life will present itself as a series of tasks. That's Bible language. It means trials and tribulations. For some of us, the first tribulation of the day, just getting up. Then there's caring for yourself. Then there's the commute. Then work. Then other people. But my knowledge of the kingdom, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God, if I remember that, puts me in a position to welcome all of these trials and tribulations. And it can change your life. You will find in your life circumstances come every day when you wake up that provide you an opportunity to be with God, to grow right where you need to grow. So for my lack of patience, 281 is a good place for me. That's where God's workout routine starts for me. I, I'm, I mean, how these people get a driver's license, I don't know. They must have paid the guy to get the license. I don't know. If you wrestle with money you, and you want to grow financially in your generosity and not be anxious about it, God will take you to the gym of financial challenges that will help you learn to trust him and grow there. Otherwise, you can't grow there. If you need to grow in patience, anybody but me need to grow in patience? You'll find yourself in frustrating circumstances where you can meet God and grow in patience. If you find yourself not being as loving as you want to be, anybody in the room not quite as loving as you think you ought to be, you'll find God sends us unlovable people into your life. And if that's not happening, oh, listen, we can assign you some. We have a whole list of them. And there'll be an opportunity for you to grow in love. When the Bible talks about welcoming trials and temptations, he's not talking about these giant, horrible diagnoses that happen once in a year. It's every day all the time. I've got this problem. I've got this challenge. What do I do? Here's what James says. Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble of any kind comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I'm wondering, what's he smoking? For you know when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So this week, when you look at a stack of bills, say, I consider you an opportunity for joy. When you're on 281 or 1604 in a huge traffic jam, 
You look at those cars and say, I consider you an opportunity for joy. When an unlovely person comes into your life, maybe they're sitting next to you, don't look. You say to them, I consider you to be an opportunity for joy. What matters is not that you grow up all at once. Paul says, don't be weary in doing well, for at the proper time, not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. What matters is not perfection. What matters is, I just don't give up on this journey of growing. It'll happen. I'll place myself where it can happen. I'll engage in activities that will help it to happen, but I'm confident in time, God will make it happen for everybody. When it comes to following Jesus and giving full devotion and growing up into the man or woman of God that God intended you to be, here's the question. Are you all in? Now, I close with this thought learned in the gym. I heard a CrossFit instructor say to a guy who wanted to be stronger these words, are you all in? Nobody just drifts into this, he said. Are you all in? You'll lift weights until you're so sore, it'll feel like your body's on fire. There will be times the next morning after a hard workout, you can barely tie your shoes. Then you're going to go and do it again. You will monitor every calorie you bring into your body and not bring in the wrong ones. Mostly, he said, I'm talking about pain, the ability to absorb mind-numbing, searing levels of pain. Are you willing to do that? Are you all in? And see, when he came to the CrossFit look, this guy was an admirer, but not a follower. He would admire the instructor, but he was not going to do what the instructor did. I want to look how he looks, but I'm not going to do what he did. See, Jesus is not looking for admirers. He's looking for followers. And that's how it would always start. When Jesus was around, people would admire him. Maybe you're in that category this morning. He's looking for followers. And I have to tell you that to die to all that stuff for money or reputation, office, the house, the zip code, possessions that you can't keep to pursue a noble character and a glorious kingdom that's eternal that you cannot lose is worth everything. Here's what's at stake. A friend of Jesus, an admirer who became a follower, writes it like this. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.